0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome to the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast, a whole host of brilliant experts for you on today's episode as we cover health, mental health and more According to sleep expert Mary Cascadon, teenagers aren't lazy, they just need more sleep. We were unpacking that with one of the leading researchers on the topic and asking, should we be changing the times our schools start? We had one woman sharing her journey with hair loss, and psychologist Dr. Michael Ryan, sharing his top tips for having healthy hair. Just how often should you wash it and what should you look for on your shampoo bottles? And in our Psychology Hour, Dr. Thryer was on hand, the clinical psychologist, to explain why more men are struggling with body dysmorphia and what are some of the risk factors in the general population. A world-renowned sleep expert joining us live in the studio and live on Facebook as well as we ask, should we let teenagers sleep more? Should we be changing the time of these UAE schools starting? Leading sleep researcher, we've got Professor Mary A. Cuskidon in the studio. She's visiting the UAE for the first time and she's joining us in the studio along with our very own sleep expert, Julie Mellon from Nurture to Sleep. If you've got any questions, this is your chance. What an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Professor Mary, let's hear a little bit about your journey to how you became a sleep expert. What fascinated you about this industry?
2: Well, sleep is, uh, well, I now know sleep is the center of life and the universe in general. But uh, I got interested actually through a relative whose name is William DeMent, who is the father of sleep research. Um, His wife was my cousin. And he invited me to come work with him for a while. And the more I did, the more I learned, the more I, you know, was engaged in it, the more excited I got about it. And I have a sort of a very vivid memory of doing a little bit of drawing back in the day. We drew our figures by hand, uh, some data, and it was like, oh, this is what I want to do this is perfect. This is you know exactly what I want to do. I want to learn. I want to you know, explore. And this is what I want to be exploring. As you say, it is the center. You know, whenever we have
1: experts on the show, and it can be all, I mean, We were just talking about hair loss earlier today. We're going to be talking about psychology in an hour's time. But sleep is universal. And I think everyone at some point in their life has struggled with sleep, whether it is a mewling newborn or struggling with menopausal insomnia, you know, the whole way through life, stress is a huge, huge problem in this part of the world. Um, So I thank you really for your work so far. And I, I wanted to ask you about some of those biggest learnings, maybe some surprises along the way during your time, your decades as a researcher, Mary.
2: Well, one of the earliest was my doing my doctoral dissertation where a hypothesis at that time was The older children get, the less sleep they need into their early teens because when you ask, they're sleeping less. So it must be they need less sleep. Well, our first study was a longitudinal study of kids who were 10 to 15, and lo and behold, under those controlled circumstances we had, they all slept the same amount regardless of age. So that was a lesson to me. Oh, that's not that they need less sleep, they're getting less sleep. That's an interesting distinction,
1: especially linked to what we've been talking about. And we're going to come on to the topic of teens in a minute. Julie, you invited Mary to come to the UAE and and share her wisdom on sleep. So what's the plan over the next few days? You're going to be doing any talks and workshops, consultations, which, of course, you're famed for in the region.
3: Um, We're not going to be doing any consultations because Mary's time is just so valuable. And we've got a a whole... list of things to do. So we're going to Dubai College tomorrow and we're going to be doing a podcast which is very exciting. Um, we're also going to be going to Zayed University where Mary's going to be delivering a lecture there to the university but also to some schools at the university. And then she has a, a really important meeting with ADEC, which is huge. It's all um, Mary, and, it's and then on holiday. Friday, yeah, and then on Friday we're back here, and we're going to be delivering lectures to the children and teenagers of Jamira Baccalaureate school, which of course was the very first school to introduce the later timing. Other schools have now followed, and then we're at Birmingham University where there's going to be a panel there, panel discussion. So
1: she's going to be tired. <laughs> But I bet, I bet she's someone that's got good sleep hygiene and knows exactly how to get the best from it. So, Mary, let's talk about teens because we've seen in other parts of the world some really interesting studies talking about how much sleep teens need. And as Julie says, we've seen schools here in the UAE adjusting their times, even starting um, a brand new school, Bloom World Academy, start and said, we're going to be kicking off at nine o'clock. And I wondered if you could point to what the data says. Are teens just lazy? Do they wake up a little bit later in the day? And how much sleep do they need?
2: Well, you know, I've, I've often thought that some of the opinions that are out there about teens and teen sleep, like they're lazy or whatever, is really blaming the victim. Uh, and I think it's unfair when we do that. Although I do have memories of my mother waking me up on the weekends singing lazy Mary we you get up <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I used to get good morning good morning in a really
1: sarcastic tone because it was close to 12 o'clock
2: <laughs> and that's you know part of what teens go through now especially with the early start times is uh, what we call social jet lag so I'm going to back up a step so one of the early findings we had was that as kids are going through puberty they have a delay in their rhythms and that's, you know, at first it was just, oh, survey kind of things. But then we've documented it with laboratory studies that that's what's going on. And so they're being kind of pushed back mm-hmm. in the timing of things by their biology. And then we made a further discovery that the, the other part of what regulates our sleep, uh, we call sleep pressure system. So the longer you stay awake, the more you need to sleep. Well, that gets slower. That buildup of sleep pressure, and so it's easier to stay awake later. So that just kind of compounds that, so that issue.
1: Interesting. And
2: so, uh, you know, and so teens then, if they have to get up early, it's the wrong time. Their sleep is squeezed out. Because they're pushed to stay up later, and there's all the psychosocial stuff too, mm-hmm. right? Stuff being the critical word there, <laughs> yeah. you know. Their their uh, electronic media, yeah. relationships, pressures, yeah.
1: academics, you know, and, and so it, and so it goes on.
2: And so, less and less sleep, but they still need the same amount. So, what happens on the weekend? They go back to where their bodies are and their brains are. The rest of the week, they're in jet lag. And on the weekends, they're living their natural sleep lives.
1: So, Mary, if you could wave a magic wand over education institutions and, and change timings to best suit teenagers, I'm not talking about, you know, all the, 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 the little things. I'm really talking about the timings and even the, the subjects, perhaps during, during certain times of the day. What would be most beneficial to teens in their brains to get the most out of them, for them to learn better, perform better and enjoy it more potentially?
2: Well, I love your last comment because I think that's been lost too. The joy of life, I think, joy of goes away and the joy of learning for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, there was a, a group of us who were working with the American Pediatrics uh, Academy and and the, the policy that we recommended was that school should not start before 8.30 a.m. And so part of that was... You've got to be reasonable so <laughs> parents and schools will listen to you. And in fact, the state of California, right before COVID hit, passed a law that targeted 830 as the time for middle school. Um, that's, you know, years six through eight about and high school should start. So <clears throat> it's been and it, that's been an interesting journey for me because, you know, my research was pointing that. You know, kids are staying up later by their biology, and then all of a sudden someone pointed out, but they got to get up so early mm-hmm. uh, to go to school. So we've been working on this um, for quite a while. We have our resident
1: sleep expert with us, Julie Mallon from Nurture to Sleep, one of the region's, well, I think, fairy godmothers when it comes to newborns, tots, teens and our own sleep as well. And with her, she has brought leading sleep researcher, Professor Mary A. Cascadon, who is known as, well, I'll let you, Julie, explain just just how important Mary is in the sleep industry and and why you felt like it was essential to bring her to this part of the world. I
3: mean, I met Mary in America last year and to... Just be having a conversation with her because Dr. Cascadham will actually go down in history as the person who identified that our teens sleep differently from children and adults. She, I mean, your, her research has been that important and also so instrumental in changing policies and laws in America to allow our children to sleep better and longer so they can be more effective at school.
1: You're, you're looking very modest in the yes. corner, Mary. But I just wanted to ask you about the consequences if teens don't get enough sleep. We we're talking there about how central sleep is to our well-being. You know, it's universally frustrating and amazing, often in equal measures. But for teens, what can the implications be on their physical health, their mental health, if they're not getting that restorative sleep that they need?
2: Well, one of the things that's become much more known about recently is the impact of sleep on learning and memory and if you think about you know what is the job of growing up it's to learn and to you know get more information and to understand it and to use it adaptively and if teens aren't getting enough sleep a they're not able to take in new information and b they lose that consolidating effect that sleep has mm-hmm. on memory and learning and then C, you know, when it comes time to take the test the next day, they're too, you know, grogged out to take the test. So, I mean, that, I think that's really central for for any child who's in school, not to mention the rest of us, but really that's their main job. Mm-hmm. And and we had mentioned earlier, you know, the joy of learning gets lost as well. And so other consequences are behavioral, so risk-taking goes way up when teens get less sleep and and it's not just, you know, riding your bicycle without your helmet, it's drinking, it's, you know, smoking, mm-hmm. it's also can lead into suicide and, you know, tragedies really such as that. Health. I mean, it's really, it's a huge challenge.
1: I think Joe's raising a really good point on the text line. Joe's saying, how should parents manage the importance of benefits of children doing sports here in Dubai, which is always early in the morning? We need to get up. Um, we, need, we need our teens to get enough sleep. Kids are ten and eleven. They're up by six thirty every morning to play sports, So what's more important? We were just saying, off oh, air, Julie, just the demands on children and teens' time here in Dubai. I mean, my kid's the same. My daughter's in the pool six thirty three times a week. She does things after school. She's a little bit younger than this, and you know, we want them to be active. You know, we want them to be engaged and part of a community and and fit. But I guess you know, kind of at, at what price? When we're talking about that teen sleep and the importance of it, Joe's kids are saying they're... 10 and 11, what kind of decisions would would you be advising around, around those priorities? So, I mean, Mary's much more of an expert than I am, but if we're looking at
3: sleep and we're looking at the benefits of sleep and looking at the type of sleep, so we know that in the early half of the night, most of the sleep is with that human growth hormone and it's that deep three sleep. And then the latter half, you know, in the early mornings, that's our rapid eye movement, that's our REM sleep. Now, you can say if a child is getting up very early, then they're not getting their REM sleep. Now, if you look at the sleep overall, we're saying, well, they lost out perhaps on 20% of their overall sleep. But because they're missing out maybe on 80% of their REM sleep, so that, and the the function of REM sleep is for a particular type of memory as well. And it's it's almost like emotional, uh, an emotional Band-Aid. It's a, a, it helps us process all the emotions of the previous day. So again, we're, are we placing our children where anxiety is much more of an issue because they're not getting all of this really important REM sleep? Because we can't have stage 1 and 2 without stage 3, 4 and
1: REM. You know, each part of it has its value. What would you say, Mary, about those
2: those choices that a lot of parents find themselves having to make? I think it's really hard. And I think one of the places you can intervene is with coaches. If they know that, okay, a child who doesn't have enough sleep isn't going to be able to understand their directions and hold them in mind and be able to learn. And the, be safe
4: as well.
1: And
2: be safe. There's some evidence about concussions mm-hmm. and other injuries Sleep not just in children but also in grown ups and professional sports people. The other thing is, if the kids don't have you or I or the kids don't have enough sleep, their reaction times are much slower. And so, a lot of sport, its reaction time is really key. So, I was just watching you know, the tennis, (laughs) it's it's on in the studio. I'm like, Mary, keep your eyes on me (laughs) over the weekend. But if you look at those, those folks need so quick reactions. Mm. And, you know, most sports do rely on reaction time. And so if you're slowed down, if you're not able to take in the instructions from the coaches. So what's been found, to go back to school start time, Uh, there were three school districts in the U.S. that changed their school start time. Uh, Actually, two resisted, one did, and they, their sports teams, Did way better than the other teams so they weren't get it they weren't practicing as much they weren't doing it all you know so early in the morning you know and i think the other thing is just be moderate moderate what you're asking of Mm -hmm. of kids Mm -hmm. do they need to have their sports practice for 15 hours a week maybe that's overdoing it Mm -hmm. well said
1: Right now, we are talking sleep. We've got Professor Mary Cosgarden in the studio. She's visiting the UAE for the first time. And Julie Mallon is with us from Nurture to Sleep. We're taking your questions, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Mary, you're on your way back to the States from Australia, stopping off in Dubai. So I need to ask you about your traveling and your
2: jet lag tips. What do you tend to recommend? I handle jet lag by sleeping on the plane uh, as much as I can. And I think that's a, that's a learned behavior because when I first did my international travel, I was so, you know, oh, movies. Know. Oh, watch the plane flying across the ocean. Uh, but I've learned to do better. Uh, I don't take sleeping pills per se. This trip I didn't take anything. Occasionally if I'm challenged, I'll take a little antihistamine I'm kind of old school. On and then, that.
1: what about at the other at the other end? Upon upon well, arriving,
2: anything that can help you settle yeah. into a rhythm? What you do is natural daylight. So, what I do when you know when I got here, well, I did take a little nap, but it wasn't daylight yet because I got here very early this morning. Uh, but then, you know, I got out and, and saw the sun, and you know, you want to try and immediately get on the schedule in the country you're going to. So don't you know sleep all day and then don't stay up all night mm-hmm. you, you need to really at least this works for me um some um, people will you know take melatonin to help them you know, to help tell their brain when nighttime should be in their new environment mm-hmm. uh but for me it's just being smart about my behavior and really trying to do the natural thing to get in tune with the new and knowing type yourself thing. as
1: well Oh, I'll take that advice. Um, an expert, um, sorry, a question here saying, can your experts please comment on sleep and growth? How important is sleep in growth? And we're talking about children and teens in particular on today's show. Um, Mary, what, what do we, has there been data on this? You know, Julie talking earlier about the stages of sleep being particularly beneficial to growth. What do we need to know?
2: Well, the, the early night sleep is really when children produce most of their growth hormone, uh, and when we grow up, we stop having that burst of growth hormone. So it's very, very important. And if sleep is disrupted, especially that part of sleep, then it interferes with growth. And my biggest recollection of that was children who have sleep apnea, so sleep and breathing problems that then are fixed when they have their tonsils and adenoids removed, and then all of a sudden, boom, a big growth spurt. Um, and so I think there's there's a strong link there and and you want kids to get enough sleep so they're getting the right kind of sleep and the right hormones and and the timing is also important. That's what I was exactly was about to ask you. In an ideal world, and obviously we're looking at UAE here
1: where schools are starting early, you know, we leave the house around just after seven o'clock, classes starting about 7.40, so that's what what we're working to. Um, How much sleep would you tend to recommend when it comes to going to bed? And then, of course, the, the inevitable getting up in the morning, what would you like to see parents here doing? Uh, you'd have to tell me the age group. Let's do that first. <laughs> let's do early years, so ages say five to t- five, ages five to ten, for example.
2: Julie knows that better. All right, Julie, you're
1: up. So,
3: according to all the neuroscience data that we have, for children before the age of eleven, their bedtime should be seven o'clock. Now, living here in Dubai is quite a late culture. Parents are working long hours, and it's really, really hard for them to get home for you know, that time spent Mm -hmm. with their children. So we're looking at 7.45 really. And if if they're in bed and asleep by 7.45, so many of their needs are being met because in that early part of the night, and particularly for pre-verbal children, that early part between 7 and 10, maybe, maybe, but certainly around that time, that's where verbal memory is really being supported. So particularly for our children who are learning to speak, we need them in bed at that time Mm -hmm. but again you're really looking at our children's sleep needs you know we are all different and some have a higher sleep need
1: than others and we can't really ignore that factor that's a very important part of the answer. Um, Great question here saying is there a link between sleep and immunity especially in young kids say below the age of 10? Uh, Yeah there's a very large sleep I mean uh, sorry link we talk about
3: um, children being resilient We also want their immune system to be resilient too. Now, we know that when we sleep at night, there's this wonderful protein called cytokines, which are produced at night. And so if our children are being, if their sleep is being disrupted, then their immune system is being compromised. We are not allowing the body to do what it should be doing. And again, Mary, I'm sure can be much more uh, analytical about the biology than me.
2: Well, I think one of the other things to look at, especially now that we've been going through COVID and getting vaccinations, is you really – your response to vaccines, Mm -hmm. so the other side of your immune system, is much better when you've had more sleep. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, whenever I was planning to get my shots, I made sure it was after a night of really good sleep so it would take effect much better. Let's go with the text
1: line, ladies. We're going to try and help as many people as possible. Um, don't forget, if you want a, a quick chat, you're more than welcome to give us a call at 048715500. Always love to hear your voice here on Dubai Eye. Um, this, is, this comes from what sounds like a very frustrated mum. This is Cassie saying, our eight-year-old twins were very early birds until recently, but now we need to cajole them out of bed in the morning. We get them up 10 past six after 7.30 bedtime. Is this just a natural progression? Any tips for getting them up so they're not foul? <laughs> so eight year
4: olds
3: well what's interesting here is the fact that they've been great sleepers and still great sleepers but they have changed their sleep pattern so it's about trying to be that detective and be curious around what could that be you know it could be that they're not having such great sleep at night and You know, the temperature at the minute is quite cool. So it could be that they're just not warm enough. Mm -hmm. And that's really a factor here. Um, The fact that it's affecting both of them is also significant. One maybe, but both of them. I would look perhaps even with their iron, you know, if their iron is low, that can cause their sleep to be altered. So I'd look just at overall factors, look at environmental factors, you know. Um, is their sleep being disrupted? Are they going to bed slightly later? And are they sneaking, kind of reading later into the night? Mm -hmm.
1: Because that's a a strong possibility. Okay. Need to be a detective, Cassie. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to teens, Mary, because Joanne's been in touch saying, I have two teens They both sleep in past noon if you let them. And I was exactly the same. My husband's ex-military and thinks they should be up, dressed and fed as soon as we are, e.g. 8 a.m. at weekends. I think they need the sleep. And waking a teen is like waking a sleeping baby. However, I do stir them just before 12. They can eat lunch and aren't skipping meals. What do you think?
2: I think that story is very old. And personally, I uh, grew up with a similar kind of sleep. The thing is, I mean, I think what, we need to be doing is moderating the sleep more during the week so that the teenagers aren't losing so much sleep. But you can't continuously cut back their sleep, which is why I you know, think you have to let them sleep in a little more in the week. And it's catch-up sleep, and it's also biologically timed sleep. Mm-hmm. So it's that combination. And they need to catch up at some point. And if you can't get them more sleep during the week, you've got to be kind, I guess. So they were talking, again, looking at the research about
3: one of the reasons for not delaying the school times was because that would be really difficult for parents with younger children. And what they the research was showing them was actually the, the younger children learned just as well by starting later. So mm-hmm. in order to support our teens, it logistically we can have these later
1: school starts for all our children mm-hmm. and, th- and the research is supporting that. Educators over the UAE, your move next. Um, <laughs> um, I want to ask you Mary a little bit about what everyone listening today can be doing to improve their quality of sleep and I know you're a specialist in the teens but I do feel like good sleep hygiene and, and sleep habits start in childhood, start in teens and, and carry through and also are perception of sleep are limiting beliefs of I'm just not a good sleeper or I have insomnia I've never been a good sleeper so in an ideal world what would you like us all to be doing trying taking watching listening to or avoiding altogether in order to have some really good quality sleep
2: I think a big culprit is caffeine uh, and caffeine, especially late in the day, and everyone says, "Oh, it doesn't affect me." It that's not He's like, "I can have four double espressos after ten o'clock." It does affect you. Uh, it not only affects, so it you know, it hits your adenosine receptor system, which is part of what helps you to fall asleep, and that's happening whether or not you realize it. It's happening in your brain. But recently, we've learned it also not only affects that arousal system. It also pushes rhythms later when you have caffeine late in the day. So Mm -hmm. there again, we have that double whammy Mm -hmm. uh, making it harder. So what I say for teens is no caffeine after school and no naps after school. Both of those things make it harder to fall asleep at bedtime. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a message we all should hear. The other message has to do with our... uh, electronic media
3: oh I knew
1: <laughs> and don't look at me because I'm just as bad as any teen out there <laughs> I did say my intention for 2023 was to charge my phone in the kitchen that has not happened yet and it's January 20. No. 20- I know I put it on airplane mode is that good enough? no oh. <laughs> Does AirPlay mode is that actually effective in terms of blocking some of the signals? And no, because things? you're still aware of it. You're still you're still you know wondering. I'm not, it? I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to. I'm going to. I'm going to have people turning off here. I am sleeping like a baby <laughs> at the minute. I am having the most amazing sleeps. And do you know what I'm putting it to? Wearing some socks. Yes. Yes.
3: <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but wearing socks. Remember the last I know, time I know. It makes we so talked difference. about your feet not being cold, so therefore it doesn't trap the heat in your. Your core body temperature can now drop, and some which crazy dreams supports there your well. melatonin. Awesome. Some crazy
1: dreams. And one last question. Um, this is uh, this is from uh, from Delia saying, my husband cannot fall asleep without noise. It's incredibly frustrating. Can we break the habit? That's interesting. One of my best friends always falls asleep with the TV on because she was just used to noise
2: in the house growing up. How do you feel about that, Mary? As As we've said a couple of times, there are individual differences and, you know, Earphones or earplugs for for yeah. her and <laughs> headsets for him. <laughs> yeah, his and his might might be a, a bit of a help. Um, but the, this is also like
3: with our babies. So I was at uh, an appointment this morning, and lovely parents I was with. They were a little bit concerned about the baby being so uh, attached to the white noise. It, white noise or any kind of noise is the easiest to remove in terms of sleep association. So he, they just have to do it very slowly mm-hmm. and. Take the volume down. Take the volume down.
1: They can get rid of it. I've been enjoying some brown noise recently. Yes. It's also enjoyable. I
2: mean, the other thing, you know, to do, some people want, you know, want to listen to their books or what. If you set the volume where you can just hear it, when you fall asleep, you can't hear it anymore because your brain isn't processing that message anyway. oh,
1: Mary. i could have you all afternoon honestly i've really really enjoyed speaking to you this afternoon thank you so so much for sharing your wisdom on teens in particular i think a lot for us to think about for anyone that wants to read any more of your research find out more about the work that you're doing is there any resource that we could point people in the direction of julie where where do you recommend um, just look up Mary,
3: Dr. Mary Kaskadden, Professor Mary Kascaden.
1: Well, it's an honour to have you in the UA. Thank you so, so much. And Julie, for anyone that needs some help here on the ground with newborns, toddlers, anxious kids, teens and of course themselves, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? Um, probably social media and nurture2sleep.com. If you want those details, just send me the word sleep or the sleeping emoji and I will send that over your way. Safe travels. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Keep going and spreading that good word. And maybe we'll have a conversation with some principals of schools next. Maybe we could be off the back of some research seeing some big changes here in the UAE. primarily thought of to be a men's issue. Hair loss actually affects around 40% of women by age 50. This is according to a 2015 study by the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology. So even though a high number of women are affected, so many are so embarrassed they won't seek out help, go to a doctor, speak to an expert... Why is male hair loss so openly discussed while so many women suffer in silence? Well, it's exactly what we're addressing this afternoon with our guest, Nita Mahalam. She is the chair of the Maha Foundation and is here to share her story. And I just want to say thank you for this. I think it's so valuable and so powerful to hear from someone who's gone through this, is going through this, and, you know, spoiler alert, has, has found a solution that's really working for you. And we are going to be joined by a number of experts during the course of the show. So if anyone does have any questions feel free to get in touch. So, Nita, when did you first start to notice that you were losing your hair?
4: It was about four years ago. I noticed a lot more shedding um, on the pillow um, after a night's sleep. I noticed a lot more hair when I was blow-drying my hair on the floor. Um, I kind of tried to dismiss it. And then, um, essentially, I went for a shower. I remember very distinctly, I was washing my hair and saw all this hair falling and really realised that I was... I was going to lose it all in a very short space of time. Were you able to pinpoint what had triggered that at all? No. um, I I tried. I think it was stress. um, But the problem is once you know that you're losing your hair, it's self-perpetuating because the stress just increases. So it actually got worse and worse. And I felt very alone, very isolated. Um, I didn't think I could really face the world. This sounds
1: like it's, and it's such a kind of cliche, people talking about, you know, your hair being your crowning glory and this, this feminine trait. And it is a lot of our emotion is tied up in the way we, the way we look about, you know, where we feel about ourselves, the way we present ourselves to the world. It sounds like you became very self-conscious very quickly.
4: Um, very much so. I, I essentially sort of felt that I had a loss of control. I felt powerless. Um, I really didn't know what to do. Um, I could Saw people to make sure that I was healthy. That was my first being a mother. I wanted to make sure that there wasn't anything wrong with my health. And once I realised that was okay, the next step was, what do I do to really face the world and, and hide it? And in the end, I chose a wig. So how was it affecting your day-to-day then, the, the way you navigated the world and things you did do and didn't do? I stopped going to the gym, stopped my classes, um, didn't go to the pool or the beach with the children. Um, I wouldn't let them have a sleepover in case somebody had come over and figured out that I I had a wig. Um, you know, I even stopped hugging people. I had a friend who hugged me affectionately and my wig slipped. Um, so I literally just started hiding. I wouldn't go out with to certain places with my husband. I literally was just a shell of my former self.
1: Thank you again for, for being with us this afternoon and sharing it because there is light at the end of the tunnel. And if anyone is going through this, we're we'll very happy to answer questions. We've got a doctor joining us soon as well. So... You got that wig and it I didn't sound like it was working out for you.
4: Not really. I mean, it, to the, the outer world, it was fine. But what happens when you wear a wig is at the end of the day, you take that off mm-hmm. and your hair loss or your lack of hair is almost like a slap in the face. You're, you're confronted with it day in, day out. And it was tough, tough mm-hmm. to, live, to live like that. It sounds like you were putting an awful lot of time and energy into looking for solutions. Where, where did that lead you? I initially I saw um, a trichologist who gave me lots of sort of vitamins and serums. Um, but it seemed like nothing worked. And I did the whole social media trying to find cures. But that actually increased my stress mm-hmm. because nothing seemed to work for me. And the more stress I had, the more that I noticed that my hair was falling out. So I made a decision to stop everything and just stick to the wig and almost just hide try and pretend that it wasn't happening Mm -hmm. um in essence it was the only way i feel i could cope i i didn't know how else to cope that wasn't sustainable
1: though was it to tell us where you've ended up now because you've found something that i mean i can see just from you know you're 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 beaming and you said to me off air that you wouldn't have been able to come and talk to me a few months ago
4: not at all i i by chance met this lovely lady called janine who has fitted me with a hair system that's permanent my hair underneath um, is safe because a, a lot of the systems, when I looked at End of My, were asking me to shave my head and actually use glue to stick hair pieces to my head, which is something that I, I was not really in a place to, to think about doing. Um, she's fitted me with this hair system, and I went to the pool. I stood um, straight and in the wind. Um, where you know, I never would have, would have done that. I'm doing a run at the end of the week with my son. I would never have done that. Um, it's a permanent system that allows me to, to almost have the hair that I wish I had even before I had the hair loss, to be honest. <laughs> We're all going for hair goals now. Absolutely. And, and Janine's in her expertise, has fitted me with hair that's a, sort of a, the right length, the right colour, so it looks natural. Um, but really, um, Helen, what she's done for me is that she has empowered me to embrace my hair loss. Um, to the extent that I feel like I can come here and I can be open and honest about it mm-hmm. um, and that she's done that through the journey that she's led me through to having the system fitted. Tell us about that because when we think of a, a
1: fix we think about that you know come in get in the chair here's your solution off you go it sounds like
4: it's been a lot deeper than that. A hundred percent she has been with me every step of the way Um She's always there for advice. She's had clients, stories that she can share in confidence. So I've not felt alone. Um, But it's I think it's more than just being open about it. It's having somebody who really understood what I was going through Mm -hmm. um, and listened. And it's a bit like um, she I didn't feel like she was just treating my hair. She was treating me as a whole person and mm-hmm. um, that journey that she's led me on um, has allowed me to to regain my confidence and kind of my husband remarked he said I've got my wife back and that kind of sums it up I think we're going
1: to be meeting Janine just next uh, I need to thank again thank you for speaking with us and lending your expertise and your experience and I think you just said it perfectly there you didn't feel so alone and I think by you raising the subject uh, hopefully women listening today are going to feel like okay there is hope. There are people out there who've been through this or going through this and are with me on this journey. We've just been hearing Nita's story and, and ultimately the solutions that she's found herself uh, That's given a a complete 180 on her thoughts around her hair loss. And the woman responsible for the big smile on her face is Janine Tharma. She's a hair loss consultant and a specialist from Hair Solutions. Going between Dubai um, and the UK, Janine, what's it like to hear Nita's experience and what you've meant to her over this last few months? It just
5: gives me so much pleasure to help Nita, but also so many other women, because Nita's story... It's special to me and it's special to Nita, but at the same time, it's so um, resonant of everybody else that I help and I just love their journeys and the clients become so much more than just my clients. I just love watching how they grow and how their life changes and how they get their life back Mm -hmm. to where they wanted it to be at the beginning. It's just, I love it.
1: I'm curious about how it works, Janine, because I feel like there's, um, (laughs) I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, (laughs) don't you dare, Um, but there's an awful lot on on Instagram reels and TikTok at the minute and people doing kind of reveals of you you didn't know this was extension, you didn't know this was a wig, you didn't know this was a, a system. And I think it's really interesting to kind of, you know, peek behind the curtain a little bit and tell us a little bit about what's been happening behind the scenes to get this to a state which is obviously Changing people's lives quite literally. Um, how does it work? How do you describe it to anyone that's not necessarily in the industry?
5: So the best way I would describe it is um, oh, it's a it's a it's a it's come from the black ladies weave system, uh, which has been adapted for ladies with obviously not such coarse hair. So it's tracked instead of braided, and a uh, caps put over the top, and then all the new hair is sewn onto the cap Mm -hmm. that is then becomes their new skin and everything gets sewn in and taped down and, but ultimately protecting their hair underneath. So that is the sculpt and the hair and everything is something that is super important to me and to the clients, Mm -hmm. because like Nita said, you know, there are systems available where you can have, your hair shaved and hair glued to your scalp. But who wants that as a woman? You never, ever want to go through having to shave your own hair.
1: It sounds like a collaborative approach then and one that's ongoing. Is this a permanent solution? Can you explain how it works with the maintenance? And I guess, as you're saying, you know, if if someone's hair is coming back, whether that's post-chemo or you're working through alopecia through the other side, you know, can you talk to us about the longevity of it? Absolutely. So um, I have a prime
5: example of a client who came to me at 18 she had very little hair and alopecia and as nita said when you take the wig off at the end of the night you're reminded what you have so the stress is there constantly so what happens is i track the hair that's back and obviously hair grows Um, every eight to ten weeks the whole system comes off We wash and cleanse the scalp, cleanse the hair, have a nice scalp treatment and the system goes back on. The stress is relieved because they have the hair that they've always wanted. And as the hair grows, it grows into the system. So it's almost integrated into your own hair. Um, And, you know, one year to the day, my young client, she had a full head of hair which she never believed that she was going to have. And to the point where I said, you know, I'm not putting this system back on you anymore. You don't need it. Yeah. And off she went with her full head of hair and was super happy. But the same, it can be a forever thing. You know, I've got clients where their hair loss will never get any better. So it's it's a system that will last forever and ever. You know, you just replace hair as and when you need it. Um, but the
1: maintenance is every eight to ten weeks, depending on your hair growth thank you so much for sharing this and kind of shining a light on on this topic. Um, if anyone wants your details, and as I said, you're, you travel between the UK and the UAE, what's the best way of getting in touch?
5: Um, so for a website, um, hairsolutions.ae, or I'm on Instagram and Facebook. But it is, it's just an amazing system. And it absolutely just, I love the transformation for women and how their lives completely
1: change. Well, it isn't just their hair I think that's exactly right exactly right and I can tell you by the woman sitting across the desk from me you've you've completely changed her life and it sounds like her husband's as well he's got his wife back Ginny thank you so so much really do appreciate it this is Afternoons with Helen Farmer
0: on Dubai Eye 103.8 the UAE's number one talk radio station
1: Fantastic to have you with us and we are talking female hair loss on the show today. We've just been in conversation with Nita who's had, in her words, a complete turnaround and how she feels around that hair loss. If you are struggling, if you are suffering, you're in the right place. We have got the doctor in the hot seat. Dr. Michael Ryan is with us. He is a world-renowned trachologist, hair loss specialist, decades of experience in treating scalp and hair loss disorders. He specialises in female hair loss and is now at a clinic called Wealth in Jumeirah 2, which sounds fantastic. Um, I want to get to, please excuse the pun, the root of all of this. I'm sure you hear that all the time. Um, Just because we've been talking about... Nita's experience, and as I alluded to earlier, we talk a lot about male hair loss, um, a lot of women struggling, suffering in silence. And I wondered if the reasons for hair loss in men and women are different in your experience in terms of what's coming into clinic? What What do we know?
0: Yeah, the differences are massive, really. So to be, not to put it in, in too small a pigeonhole, but most men, most, not all, have genetic hair loss, so inherited through the genes, it displays itself, you know, recession of the temples and they get a bald spot and so on. But not all men, but the majority of men we see do have this. And and it would follow
1: that pattern. And it follows
0: like... the pattern and it doesn't necessarily, uh, because your dad wasn't bald, doesn't mean to you, you won't be. It skips generations, so we don't fully understand the line, but we know it's inherited. Some men, on the other hand, do have complications like low iron or low testosterone or, you know, they have some inflammation But the majority are genetic and there are things we can do as a prevention Mm -hmm. rather than a cure for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas with females, it's a whole different ballgame. And the biggest problem in Dubai and the biggest problem in the world, really, I would say with female hair loss is that it is constantly misdiagnosed as genetic hair loss. And it drives me insane.
1: The danger with that misdiagnosis means that you're not going to be looking for that initial cause and that could be all manner of things i'm guessing what else could it be
0: an indication of it it can be thyroid it can be inflammation it can be stress it can be um, low iron you know nutrients Mm -hmm. all sorts there's there's lots of things and it's usually a combination of one or two rather than just saying i've got stress yeah. It's, or you know, it's
1: low iron have an infusion yeah, and everything's going to be. It's lots golden. of
0: usually it's a an accumulative thing for females.
1: I'd like to get an understanding of when hair loss tips into the problematic. Because how many how many hairs, for example, would, you would know, a typical person be losing every day?
0: Well, the average is somewhere between ninety and one twenty a day, but not many people Counting actually them. sit and count them. <laughs> I do have clients that come and count them. They bring boxes in. But generally, you know, when you shampoo your hair and you're looking in the bottom of the shower, you you subconsciously know that that amount is about right for you. Mm-hmm. Once it sort of tippy-toes over that amount, you sort of register it and don't do much about it. But if that continues to the point where you start to think, I'm losing too much hair, then that is the time to certainly monitor it for the next week or two weeks. And if that continues, go and see somebody. Don't go and see a GP. Don't go and see a dentist, go and see somebody that specialises in hair. He's here, Dr. Michael Ryan.
1: <laughs> so this is your chance to, to pick the brains. With uh, uh, just a message, can you please share the speaker's name and details? Dr. Michael Ryan speaking to us from Wealth, that's W-E-L-L-T-H uh, in Jamira, 2. Um, world-renowned trichologist. Let's go to the text line. Jordan's saying, does lack of sleep affect hair loss? I've heard that.
0: Absolutely. Sleep is important for... All bodily functions. We are and talking it,
1: sleep after three o'clock today, so I'll ask our yeah, sleep researcher.
0: For sure. And one of the big things is when people come in, you know, we do a full medical history and the, the questions we ask are, you know, your diet mm-hmm. and do you sleep? And quite often, especially with women or females, yeah. it's like, yeah, I get three or four hours. Oh, well, geez. you know, how can you function? How can you, how can you expect your body to function as well? You know, your hair is metabolically, it is very expensive. It is really expensive. It's the second fastest growing thing in your body. So it demands a lot of metabolic energy. Mm -hmm. So if you're not recovering and repairing and renewing the system,
1: what do you expect? It's going to suffer. And you would get this question from Kieran (laughs) saying, a lot of people in the UA use filters on their showers. Does that make a difference to hair quality or hair loss?
0: It makes a huge difference to hair quality. So the hair, once it's out and it's the stuff you can see, It's a fibre. It's dead. It is not alive. So the water here, although it's not bad for desalinated water, it does have a drying effect and, of course, the weather, Mm -hmm. you know, the sunshine and the sand in the air. So the hair can become a little bit dehydrated and dry. Shower filters will help the condition. They will not help with hair loss. Okay. And the water does not cause hair loss.
1: Thank you. (laughs) I think it's an interesting because a lot of people go, I moved to Dubai and my hair started falling out. And you go, well, you moved to Dubai, you moved countries, you probably changed it, jobs.
0: There's a lot going on. Yeah, you've changed jobs, you've changed diets, you've changed lifestyle, you're driving down straight, Shakespeare Road, is stressful. Mm-hmm. You know, so things happen. How often should we washing our hair, asked Lena. How often do you wash your face? Every day. Yeah, well, that's how often you should wash your hair. Really? Absolutely. Who's got the time? Everybody, no thirty seconds I'm in the shower. Air,
1: I'm there like a beautiful mind, being like, if I do a spin workout on Monday and I'm playing paddle on Tuesday, if I can get away with washing my hair, it's like it's like an ongoing maths algorithm that I'm trying well, to work if out. If you're
0: in the shower, you've got takes two minutes to shampoo. To shampoo I can wash it. It's
1: the drying, Michael. Uh, That's the pain. Well, Here's the question: drying. What do you recommend to keep your hair in tip-top quality? And is there any truth in how good these Dysons are?
0: Um, no, they're just. You know they dry hair.
1: They're very nice to look at. They're lovely
0: and they sound nice and they look nice and they, they dry, but yeah, they just hair dryers.
1: Um, question about prevention, because that's that's a, a big Key. priority for, yeah. for you as doctors, but also at the clinic as well. Um, is there anything we could be incorporating into our diet supplementation that can be very beneficial? Because we see an awful lot of, you know, chuck in this, you know, collagen powder, take this supplement. What does the science say?
0: Well, there's no one magic Potion, you know, and you look on TikTok now and Instagram, and everybody's Flogging. advocating ashwagandha and all these these ancient remedies. I would say if you if you think your diet is not the best, and in Dubai that it can be difficult, mm-hmm. and your lifestyle is maybe busy and active, then it's probably worth going to see somebody like a functional medicine person to get the the inside sorted first, and rather than just going to the pharmacy and plucking a supplement. Off the shelf because your friend uses it, get or a TikToker, or a TikToker TikTok TikTok has told you. <laughs> yeah, they get get a, an evaluation, get a diagnosis, and then have a plan.
1: I want to go to this. This is from Tarek saying, my wife gave birth four months ago. She's been losing hair ever since. Um, it's a serious amount of hair. Is there anything that can be done in her lifestyle to help? Let's talk about pre and post birth hair and hair loss because I think every woman's had some experience of it.
0: Yeah, postpartum hair loss is very common. So Why it's, is all, that? it's all about. Um, Hormone levels, so while the baby's you know, in vitro, it's, it's growing and the hormones are raging and full. and as soon as the baby's born, mm-hmm. the hormone levels drop. So when the hormone levels drop, usually two to three months after, you see this massive shedding of hair. And it's so alarming. It's it quite normal. It is frightening sometimes. Mm-hmm. It can sometimes get stuck in that situation if the, the mother is not sleeping, not eating, you know, and she's maybe a bit stressed because of the baby and mm-hmm. maybe got other children as well. But generally it will reverse. Anything
1: uh, you you'd recommend for Tarek and his wife to help her get back on track or just manage it until it Don't worry
0: through. about it is the main thing. Don't give any stress about it. It, it will sort of get back on its own, its own time. But if it gets a little bit stuck and you're thinking it's taking too long, then see somebody and maybe some supplement or some nutritional advice. But uh, sleep, so for sure.
1: Go on, Tarek, that's your cue. step in there um a message saying um how about oiling hair and how often and we had another message actually from payal saying as indians we use a lot of oils on our hair from the moment we are babies does this help with hair growth or is it just conditioning
0: yeah the indian thing is is very big here because we obviously have a a very large indian community and uh, i have a lot of indian clients and they they all oil their hair and i would never tell them not to um from a conditioning point of view it's not really the best it's not great on black hair it looks amazing when you just oiled it it looks really shiny the problem with oil is it sticks to the surface it will attract dust and you know dead skin particles so it lo- soon looks dull mm-hmm. and also it can smell after a very short time so it's not really great for conditioning and it certainly has no benefit in hair growth or stopping hair falling but I would never tell Indian the Indian culture to stop using it.
1: Dr Michael I wanted to ask you a question no name and as we say it's always absolutely fine to be anonymous saying Hmm. is balding in women reversible I'm mid-30s let's talk about I mean obviously it's going to be it depends on the reason for the balding presumably but also some of the methods that you're using in clinic.
0: Yeah if if somebody's mid-30s it's highly unlikely that it's a genetic hair loss. So, so balding as such. So she may be thinning for, as I said, lots of different reasons. So the key thing is to find out the reason, Mm -hmm. get the correct diagnosis. And then those things are always reversible or 99% of the time they're reversible. Treatments are things like PRP, growth factors, stem cells, microneedling, all those kind of treatments are really, really good But the key is, you must have the correct diagnosis first. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. they don't do a lot and they cost a lot of money. And when they don't work, you become more stressed and it becomes a vicious cycle. And, you know.
1: Follow up question saying Is there a functional medicine doctor you recommend? You've got one at the clinic.
0: Yeah, we've got two or three at the clinic, and they're all uh, highly specialized and. Brilliant, really, and they're in a world that I completely don't understand.
1: But that's why it's great, because you can work but together.
0: We, the synergy is great, because we pass from one to another, and we all combine the, the, the different skills and knowledge within the wealth. So mm-hmm. it's really great.
1: For anyone listening today who feels a bit baffled when they go into their pharmacy, their supermarket, by the rows of shampoos and conditions and treatments and masks, and mm. blah, blah, blah. can you give us a quick, not necessarily gold standard, but in an ideal world... What should we be putting on our hair, not putting on our hair, and treating our hair to keep it in good quality, and also preventually, you know, kind of prevent anything that we're talking about today?
0: so singly, the best thing you can do for your hair is shampoo it every day, if not every day, every other day okay. at the very least. Okay, I'll, I'll make that promise. Buy, you know, buy a good quality shampoo. You don't have to buy, you know, a two thousand dirham bottle of shampoo with all gold bells and whistles. Just a good quality. Probably a professional shampoo is good, recommended by your hairdresser. Don't buy something cheap and nasty. Good conditioner, that's it. If you want a top tip when you look at the back of a bottle of shampoo, look how far down on the list of ingredients the sodium chloride is. The closer to the top, the cheaper the shampoo. So...
1: The one to watch. Top tip. Last question. Um, maybe, Oh, it depends. I, might, I might ditch a song for you. Um, <laughs> hair itching, um, scalp peeling, any insights there? So you are, do help with scalp disorders as well,
0: doctor. Yeah, so if, it is, if it's itching, it could be uh, bacterial, it could be fungal, it could be the fact that they're not cleansing the scalp often enough. You know, we have things that live on the scalp, that live on our body, we, we need them to live. Mm-hmm. So the or microflora the scalp is enriched with sebaceous glands so every hair follicle has at the side of it an oil gland which produces oil roughly every six to eight hours they're like little oil wells going off independently that oil is is great food for this these little things that live on us and it traps the oil traps the skin onto the scalp so it's a nice breeding ground for the microflora and any bacteria. So they multiply if the scalp is not clean. So you become a little bit itchy, and then the itching can lead to, you know, you, you dig with and your nails and infections. And you get a secondary infection. Okay. So keeping it clean is, is really a good thing.
1: And as you said before, getting the correct diagnosis. Yeah, don't and you if just they be do wh- have,
0: whacking on any. If, if other they do have something like a dandruff or a seborrheic dermatitis, which is what dandruff is. Mm-hmm then the correct sort of uh, specific shampoo and the specific treatments depending on the level of, of the problem.
1: We've run out of time. I have run out of questions. Oh, We'd love well. to have you back, Michael. What's the best way of getting in touch with you and anyone looking to seek out a diagnosis or further advice? They can get contact
0: to? The Wealth or they can contact me on Instagram at Dubai Hair Doctor and uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions anytime.
1: You're an absolute star. Thank you so, so much. You're very welcome. I'd love a further chat and thank you again for all of your insights. Dr. Michael Ryan, if you want to send me a message just saying hair, I will very happily, <laughs> Send you his details. And thank you again, Tanita and Janine, for shining a light on a very important topic and one that is not discussed enough. This is your psychology hour here on Dubai I-103.8, and we're talking about body dysmorphia today amid a study that claims more adolescent boys and young adult men are struggling with muscle dysmorphia than ever before. Now, societal expectations can have a huge impact on young people and indeed adults with fully developed brains on how they view themselves and as a result young boys and men are engaging in risky behaviours, strenuous muscle building, exercises, even medications in order to fit that standard. For many there's this mindset of never being big enough or strong enough and we're talking muscle dysmorphia but also opening out to body dysmorphia which can affect so so many people and really unpacking that with Dr Therai, a clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Dr T, thank you for being with us. Um, let's start with a couple of definitions if you don't mind and let's start with that broader term Mm -hmm. body dysmorphia um can you tell us a little bit is it is it technically a disorder how is it viewed by you as a as a professional
6: so essentially when you talk about people with um body dysmorphic disorder, we're talking about the negative attitudes that people have towards their body, which strongly impacts their day-to-day functioning. So this is, uh, it leads to, you know, significant kind of um, concern and obsession with the way that they look, how they eat, what they're doing, what needs to be fixed, how to um, avoid looking a specific way with specific clothes or, or makeup and so on and so forth. So it actually preoccupies them quite a bit and it takes up A lot of their time and and affects their day-to-day functioning as well as their Mm well-being
1: and then when we look at that that category that is really in the news right now looking at the affecting the young teenage boys young men in particular muscle dysmorphia md we can break that down for us please
6: so it's it's basically a subtype of uh, body dysmorphic disorder. So muscle dysmorphia is basically the, the preoccupation or the negative attitude towards your muscles. Uh, the tendency for, for males, it's more obviously uh, um, uh, observable in males than it is in females. But um, males tend to see themselves as small, as not very muscly. They feel themselves to be quite... Uh, thin in in nature and not or very lean and uh, lanky rather than um, quite you know fit and and uh, well, well this uh, ideal yeah this, this,
1: this ideal that we you know is being kind of fed to us in in the media and you know mm-hmm. the mechanisms as men as well as women and these kind of societal ideals which you know seem to change all the time I mean, we certainly see this in, in fashion through the ages with women in particular you know you've got your kind of your 90s Kate Moss and chic then you get to your Kim Kardashian's you know your Brazilian butt lifts. Um, and with men as you're saying it's kind of it's this link of alpha being very muscular and then we look at not just celebrities but also peers and social media we're going to be looking at some of the why's in a minute but I wanted to ask you because According to the International OCD Foundation, the condition affects about 1 in 50 people. But what is the link to OCD, Thiraya?
6: It's quite significant. I mean, there are a lot of individuals that have a comorbidity between obsessive-compulsive disorder and body dysmorphia or muscle dysmorphia. So basically what happens is that the obsessiveness, which is part of OCD, so you have the obsessive and the compulsive behaviour. So the obsessiveness and the thoughts of not being big enough or not being thin enough or depending on if you have body dysmorphia what feature you're trying to perfect Mm -hmm. to constantly be thinking on uh, about how to perfect it and how to make it look better or the ideal that the person is thinking of and so what ends up happening is that they start engaging in specific behaviors that are trying to match the perfect ideal within their mind. And that could be behaviors that could be extremely detrimental for them. And that could be things like, um, well, for let's say for muscle dysmorphia, it could be uh, weighing their foods, taking anabolic steroids, working out way too much, um, not, not eating things that are healthy, rather only things that are focused on building muscle mass. And so all of these different behaviors become extremely compulsive and they start to actually affect the person in many different ways, yet the person is no longer interested in the other ways that it's affecting them as long as they're actually hitting their target weight or target muscle mass or so on and so forth.
1: Dr. Fry, we've had a number of messages on this. I guess some people just asking about some of the red flags they've noticed in themselves and the way they're feeling, but also in those around them. S is saying, could an addiction to fillers, researching plastic surgery, etc., be an indication? I'm unsure of the line between wanting to look your best and hating yourself. I think that's a really pertinent question because this kind of idea of self-improvement and, you know, goals and, you know, hitting your targets and blah blah blah, when does that tip into unrealistic goals and not actually having an accurate perception of what you look like that 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 kind of eye brain disconnection i suppose Theraya, i am asking
6: mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the most important things to ask yourself is why am I doing this? And if it stems from a place of I'm not good enough, then that's definitely something that you want to consider to put on hold before you even touch it. Because in reality, what we see and there have been so many different shows like reality TV shows that have shown this about how people are constantly trying to get more and more plastic surgery because they're trying to look enough or be good enough. But in reality, that has nothing to do with what you externally look like. It's actually what you're experiencing internally. So the difference is why am I doing this? If I am very happy within myself and I'm feeling good about myself, no matter what I look like, yet there's just something that I'd like to enhance or or fix or change or whatever it is, that's fine. It's the equivalent of a person, for instance, getting a new haircut. It's not something that you are, that you need in order to feel good about yourself. Mm-hmm. You're just getting it done because you feel like you want to change. And that's okay. But if the underlying reason is, is that I'm not good enough, whatever I look like is not enough, and there needs to be something that changes in order for me to feel a sense of worth, a sense of value, then that's where the line is now crossed.
1: Often and incorrectly dismissed as a first world problem or a bad case of vanity, body dysmorphic disorder remains a really misunderstood condition. It is in fact an anxiety disorder that causes someone to have a distorted view of how they look. The outcome, they'll spend a lot of time worrying about their appearance, may even avoid social situations as a result. And it's more common than you think. To unpack this and answer your questions, Dr. Thryer, clinical psychologist, joining us now. Um, I wanted to come to a message from Tina. Tina, thank you for, for reaching out. Um, doctors, um, she's saying thank you both. My daughter suffers from this terribly. She's going through a really intense patch of BDD and feels increasingly fat and ugly. She's neither. Um, and keeps on talking about a strong urge to get liposuction, lip fillers, Botox, none of which she needs. I'm struggling to say the right thing. In the past, pointing out this how she feels isn't true has worked, but right now it's not helping. She's now at uni, and I know they've got good mental health support, but she's reluctant to engage. How can I help? Are there any links I can send her or anything I can read to boost my own knowledge on the topic? Great timing, and thank you for any advice. Thank you for that, Tina. I really do appreciate it. And I think we've actually had more messages from people recognising it in loved ones and friends and actually people who suspect they might be suffering themselves through So for anyone that wants to help support someone in their life that might be suffering from body dysmorphic disorder, what would you say?
6: One of the first things I'd say is don't focus on the way that they look, because no matter what you tell a person, they're going to see themselves the way they do. And this is something that's actually, we we find a lot of body dysmorphic disorder that is quite comorbid with eating disorders as well. And it's very similar to those that have anorexia, where they see themselves as fat, where in fact, they might just be skin and bones. So the more you comment on their weight, or the more you comment on their looks, the more you're actually encouraging them to continue whatever the behavior they're engaging in. So the best thing, to do is focus on them as an individual, recognize their strengths, highlight their strengths, encourage them in terms of who they are as, in, as people, And focus less on their weight and on what they look like. This is one of the first things that you really want to want to um, highlight. Mm -hmm. Now, another thing that you can do there, there are a lot of readings that are out there. They don't come to mind off the top of my head, but I can send them to you if you want, Helen, in terms of books that can be read. Uh, There are a lot of great links online, especially when you go to places like the Mayo Clinic. They talk a lot about body dysmorphia and um, and muscle dysmorphia as well. But in general, when we're talking about seeking help. This is one of the scariest things for individuals that have body dysmorphia or even eating disorders, because they've held on to this disorder for such a long time, and they've held on to an image for such a long time. And And the possibility of them letting go of that image can be very scary for them. So it's a process that actually takes a little bit of time before they work up the, the, the It's not the strength, it's the courage to actually go in because really it is about understanding that you're going to have to let this go. And for the longest time, this has served a function for them and it's actually helped them in many ways. And more often than not, it's because they've been focusing on one thing in their life rather than focusing on many other things that may not necessarily be what they want to be mm-hmm. because we do see a lot of perfectionism and a lot of issues of control that that are comorbid with uh, body dysmorphia or even with eating disorders.
1: thank you for that throw we're going to hear now from Justin baldoni he's an actor a filmmaker talking about his own struggle with muscle dysmorphia and just how many other men are struggling today
7: up until I think recently when you think of Men, you would never put that next to the word body image. It just doesn't exist. That's a female thing. So much of what I was consuming was reinforcing this idea that I was not enough. Down to, if you go to the grocery store, look at a men's magazine. What do you see? It's basically telling us all of the things we're not so that they can sell us all of the things that we should be. It's an industry. It wants us to feel insecure so that it profits off us, which is what we have been doing to women forever. But now what's interesting is that us men are starting to be affected by it. Recent surveys said 43% of all men reported being unhappy with their physical appearance. When I talk about it, I can't tell you how many messages I get from men who are like, oh my God, thank you for saying something. I thought I was alone there. Why? Because the greatest myth of masculinity is that we have to do it alone. For me, it all comes down to trauma. It all comes down to my experiences as a boy, the way I was pleased, shamed, what I was comparing myself to what I was consuming, the action heroes that I looked up to, all of it, I've been programmed to believe that I'm not enough, even when I am. And my specific type of dysmorphia is muscle dysmorphia. It's not body dysmorphia. It's muscle dysmorphia, which is a phenomenon that I believe, and I would argue, 90% of every man in any gym you go to in America right now has, except we've normalized it. Why? Because we live in a patriarchal society, and as men we get to choose what we normalize, and we've normalized all of us men having body image issues, eating disorders, you name it, in the sake of 7 to 8% body fat.
1: Justin Baldoni there, does this resonate with you? Get in touch. We've got Dr. Thryer um, with us through until 5 today as we unpack body dysmorphia. Um, I wanted to ask you, um After the headlines, Tharaya, about some of the reasons, some of the risk factors around why someone might develop this. Um, So please, uh, please get ready. And there's a a message here that I just wanted to come to, um, which relates to exactly what you just said, Tharaya. No name saying, thank you for this. A good friend wears a huge amount of makeup. Genuinely quite alarming to look at real life, although I think she thinks it looks good in photos. She has a history of eating disorders. Could this be linked?
6: It can definitely be linked because in in the end, um, with body dysmorphic disorder, we have uh, this negative perception of what we look like. And with eating disorders, it's quite the same. And some, depending on the eating disorder, actually, it could be weight related, but it could also be control related. And so when an individual feels like they are not good enough, which is where a lot of these things are stemming from, then they're going to utilize any type of uh, coping strategy, unhealthy coping, coping strategy that they can in order to make themselves feel a little bit better Mm -hmm. and makeup is definitely one of them
1: i think it's a really good distinction to make that when we talk about body dysmorphia we're not just talking about you know going to the gym you know sometimes it can be you know picking at skin wearing makeup here you know a lot a lot of things falling under that category psychology hour here on Dubai I 103.8 i'm helen farmer in conversation with dr thry and we're talking about body dysmorphia today and a study that claims that more adolescent boys and young adult men are struggling with muscle dysmorphia than ever before which begs the question dr t why are we talking about it more or do you feel like there are more modern day contributing factors that are arising um, and leading to a spike in this disorder
6: Well, I definitely feel that, and research is showing that uh, media and social media portrayals of men and women are reinforcing this idea that people are supposed to look a certain way, they're supposed to be a certain way. And that's creating the societal pressure um, and these expectations of beauty for us to meet. And they're extremely unrealistic because if you look at a lot of the people that are on these platforms these people have trainers that are there for like six seven hours a day and <laughs> nobody has time for that for the rest of us no, we have you're, work and no, we you're have right. you
1: know, whether it is you know someone in the public eye who as you say who's got access to a whole bank of experts from you know personal trainers chefs makeup artists hair extensions can i just say i'm so sick of people pretending the the like just be real about it. I, I Massive right. hair envy on a lot of people. And I realised oh, that's not actually their hair, but filters. And I think this is something we've seen certainly in teens is people getting used to seeing themselves looking a certain way because of filters on their social media and then being disappointed by what they actually see in the mirror, which is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, what other risk factors are at play when we think about people that might end up um, having body dysmorphia disorder?
6: Well, normally individuals that have certain personality traits like perfectionism, that could be definitely one of them. Um, people who experience bullying at a very young age, uh, people who have negative self-image, but also individuals who experience a lot of traumatic uh Um, childhood events and that could be anything so any type of abuse in any way shape or form neglect as well could be a major one so any if if you want to really look at it from a thematic perspective you're talking about anything that could make an individual feel like they are less worthy that they are not valued and that they are not in control of the situation around them. So if they grow up in an environment that's very unstable, that's very insecure, that could definitely lead to um, body dysmorphic disorder, uh, disorder or even muscle dysmorphia. But also things like anxiety could, can contribute significantly as well as depression. And we know that those stem from negative self-image as well.
1: Dr. Thurai I want to go to the text line now. Um, and you can get in touch with us, of course, on 4001. That's the SMS. The ARN play app is there and the WhatsApp too. Some people asking questions, some people just commenting reflecting on what we're talking about today no name on this one saying from a very young age i remember my mother and older sister making fun of my stomach or quote pot belly literally remember them drawing a face on it and giving my stomach a name i've had weight issues my entire life i remember weighing myself multiple times a day in primary school feeling very self-conscious when the girls in my class wore crop tops because my stomach didn't look like theirs am i being too sensitive my weight issues as an adult are my own issues and i'm accountable for being overweight But I do think as a child as young as seven, pointing out weight was pretty cruel. So not so much a question, but I think exactly what you're just talking about there, about childhood trauma that's bullying Mm. you know and and I mean I I
6: definitely wanted to jump in and say no there's absolutely no sensitivity there it is extremely inappropriate to bring up a child's weight and it's extremely inappropriate to bring up anybody's weight I mean in reality we need to start normalizing the idea of not talking about people's weight and just saying okay you're looking good you're looking healthy not oh you look thin oh you lost weight oh you gained weight like who are you to say anything like that? I'm sorry, I'm getting very worked up because it's very triggering for me. Because it's such a horrible thing to do to an individual. It's basically saying that what you look like now is either better or worse than it was before. And you're assigning a value statement to a person's worth based on the way that they look, which is horrendous. I mean, and especially for a child, that is extremely traumatizing because remember, children process information from their world in a very emotional manner, which is also an, a very exaggerated and imaginatory manner, which means whatever they understand at that age is going to be taken as you know, almost like a generalized statement of who they are. So when you say something like, oh, you're a little chubby around the edges or something like that, you're basically saying to that child, oh, you look cute, but that child is interpreting that as, oh, I'm fat. Oh, there's something wrong with me. Oh, there's something that needs to change. That means I'm not good enough. You need to understand that a child's brain takes things to a much higher level than an adult's brain would. So it's important to be very cognizant and very mindful and intentional when we're talking not just to children, but even to adults.
1: Absolutely agree. Well said. Thank you. Um, C has been in touch saying, I've had a baby just over a year ago. I gained weight now UK size 16. Going through my phone, I've realised how many pictures I have not taken with my family and daughter as I've waited until I, quote, looked better. In other words, till I'm slimmer. Yes, even when I was a size eight, I felt I looked chunky. I don't have many pictures of me in general. I've seen so many beautiful women who are plus size. Why can't I ever think it's possible for me to look decent while not being perfect? And I think this is so closely tied with body dysmorphia, but also body image. Um, and that that time after having a baby, my goodness, you know, you don't know what's what's going on. It takes an awfully long time to make peace with your new identity, with how your body's changed, your new roles and responsibilities. And it sounds like you're being really, really hard on yourself. It really does. Um, Therai, I wanted to ask about treatment. And I'm not talking about this, this listener in particular having having body dysmorphia, but for anyone that is feeling like you used the word obsession earlier, but you know, they're having intrusive thoughts about how they look and wanting to change it. And, you know, it feels like it's taking over many aspects of their life. If someone was to come to you and say, I've, you know, the penny has dropped, I've realised that there is a disconnect between what I believe and what is, you know, looking back at me in the mirror, that, you know, I am not as big as I thought I was, or that I, I am obsessing about getting bigger, getting smaller, whatever someone's particular issue is. Where do you start with that in clinic? Can you can you unpack that a little bit for us?
6: Well, for me personally, as a therapist, I don't focus on the weight or what they look like at all, because in the end, I know that this has nothing to do with that, that this is just a consequence and really a symptom of a lot um, of issues that, are, that have happened before. So I look in the past and I try to find the connections and the associations, and I help them understand the, the links to how they grew up and where they are today. And that link is very important because what it creates is a sense of compassion towards that inner person that that person that is and that exists in this vessel that you that you currently have and why that vessel is where it is today. and so my the last thing that i do is focus on the person's looks i focus on helping them understand who they are as individuals having a more unified sense of self recognizing all of their great qualities and their not so great qualities as well and being okay with that and accepting you for who you are. And recognizing that there is beauty in all of us, we just have to find it and and by allowing that empowerment of the individual internally to come out, the external um, shell that we have eventually will will match it with whatever that looks like
1: mm-hmm. I could also talk about you know controlling your environment when we think about the images that we're bombarded with constantly, and some of that's not through choice, whether it's through you know adverts and television. But in terms of social media, you absolutely can't control what's what comes into your your face and your phone. So if, you're, if there's someone that makes you feel terrible just remove that remove them from your feed it can be i don't want to say life-changing but it can definitely impact your mood on a day-to-day basis and i say there's someone who's had a lovely editing spree recently for 2023 have a good clear out thrive if anyone is really concerned about how they're feeling um around their body or indeed there's someone in their life that you think could really do with a bit of an expert holding hands what's the best way of getting in touch with you guys at the human relations institute and clinic
6: Well, they can contact us at the clinic or if they just want to ask me a quick question, they can contact me on my Instagram. Thank you
1: so, so much. Um, You can just send me a message saying Dr. T and I will send you those details over. Dr. Thry, I really appreciate your time and insights on this. As I said, hugely worrying and something that's not talked about enough. So thank you for all of your advice over the last hour. Thank you.